Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm Peter Keen. I am glad to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Netflix is moving into the world of streaming video games. Following weak subscriber growth uh, post-pandemic, itself an artifact of so many people front-loading subscriptions during the beginning of the pandemic, Netflix's Reed Hastings has pulled the trigger and decided to get Netflix into the business of streaming video games. Uh, in a way, this makes sense. After all, Netflix is already in some 200 million households, giving it a huge subscriber base. Um, competitors are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into things like uh, a series of Exorcist films, uh, which is going to be on Peacock and Universal and, you know, who knows where else, wherever else the, the Peacock logo shows up. Uh, Amazon, of course, has thrown a billion dollars at Lord of the Rings. You know, Netflix is losing its its advantage on the ability to waste money on giant projects. Um, mobile gaming is a huge uh, and underappreciated segment of the overall gaming market. Another reason to get in. Uh, it, it accounts for something like $98 billion, with a B, uh, dollars worth of revenue uh, in the last year. Um, and Netflix already That's spends... like 98 Lord of the Rings. Uh, and Netflix already spends a ton of effort and money mining people's data to see how they want to spend their time. Uh, look... They have a base of intellectual property that they think they can exploit to create new and exciting properties, maybe video games based on their stuff. Uh, this is how the Financial Times puts it. Quote, viewers of blockbuster shows like Stranger Things, Money Heist, and Black Mirror might be excited by Netflix's move into gaming, but an analysts and investors are more divided about the heavily indebted company's new foray into a vast but intensely competitive part of the entertainment market. Um, I'm skeptical. I, I would be in the skeptical half of things. Uh, first off, these are two very separate markets. Consider Sony's inability to convert uh, an enormous base of gaming subscribers who use PlayStations uh, into viewers for their own streaming platform, Crackle. Uh, Sony actually sold off their interest in Crackle. They, they're, they're just getting out of that entirely. They're selling all of their... Uh, their they're, they're distributing all of their stuff via Netflix and other uh, services. Um, second off, uh, what mobile games, mobile games specifically, are going to be based on Netflix properties? You know, I could see like a long form Resident Evil style game based on Stranger Things, maybe, but a mobile game, I don't know. Um, and, and finally, I just find the whole thing a little bit creepy, frankly, that they want to use your data to program video games based on Black Mirror, uh, that technophobic series that highlights the myriad ways in which tech companies are misusing our data and other stuff to destroy our humanity. Um, I don't know, Peter. I play video games, but I'm definitely not a gamer. I'm not a gamer. That's not me. That's not my identity. It's not how I identify. Uh, but you you are, kind of, more, more so than me anyway. What am I missing here? You're not a gamer, but you did really love that Gerard Butler film. I, did, I, I like it uh, more than I like a, a lot of the other movies by those guys, because it does at least kind of get at the uh, soullessness of modern gaming. Peter, what? what so I, 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 I thought it was interesting that you framed this um, against rivals who are spending hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars in the case of Lord of the Rings um, on these vast, vast IP driven in many cases uh, projects that are just right. These are sort of super high profile projects that are designed to lure people in. Um, and Netflix, as you said, has in some ways already run that strategy into the ground. It's really hard for them to figure out how else to spend a lot more money in a way that's productive, at least on films and television and you know the, the, on the kinds of things that they already run. 
And games offer an opportunity for them to spend even more money. Games are just huge projects. They're incredibly expensive. They can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, even in the, you know, in the, uh, the half a billion dollar range, they can take years and years to make. Um, and all, but also they take up a huge amount of time for players. And so this is the thing that I think people who don't play a lot of video games or are not immersed in the video game world only sort of understand. The modern video game ethos for, from game makers is to suck up as much time as possible from their players. And that, in fact, that's what the game studios like, but that's also what the players like. They're looking for games that are just enormous time sinks. Uh, one of the big popular MMO shooter things that's been running for, I don't know, not quite a decade at this point, five or seven years, something like that, has had a couple of iterations. It's called Destiny. Um, and like, uh, it's basically sort of halo except online and it never really ends. And there was a survey a couple of years ago that showed that at the time, uh, the typical player played about three hours a day. So that's a typical player, which means that if you understand sort of how the law of averages and distributions work, that means that their hardcore players, their their sort of core player base, probably playing in the range of six to nine hours every single day. And so Destiny, of course, is not exactly what Netflix is trying to in invest in here. It's a somewhat bigger game. But at the same time, mobile games is less of a specific genre these days than it used to be. Um, and I, I would point you, you know, uh, towards what Xbox is doing. So Xbox, they have a new console out and they're trying to sell people Xbox Series X and all of that. But what they're really trying to sell people these days is something called Xbox Game Pass, which is a $10 or $15 a month, depending on your exact particulars, service in which you get access to something like 100 fully playable games, including all of uh, the Xbox originals on launch day. And so what they want to do is sell you the service. And in fact, individual game studios are now trying to do the same thing. And there's the term of art for this that, is, um, that has become popular in the industry over the last couple, couple of years is games as service, right? So they will sell you one game maybe in 2018, but then the idea is that they'll constantly be updating it um, you know, for the next several years, and maybe you'll be paying through for part of it. But Either way, it takes up a ton of time. And if Netflix judges itself on two things, how many subscribers it has and how much time they spend on their service, then this investment makes sense right now um, like as a way to build on what they already have and to try to stay ahead of their competitors who are, as you said, spending huge amounts of money on giant projects that are going to lure people away from Netflix. Can I ask you a dumb question? I was probably the person in this podcast who has spent the least amount of time playing video games. Peter, isn't it typically that mobile games are just generally a different beast from the you know the massively multiplayer online yeah. games that are supposed to be very immersive? So that has been true historically, and okay. sure, if you just look through the Apple, you know, the the game store on Apple, or even Apple's games service, they now have a I believe it's a five dollar a month Arcade, um, yeah. game service uh, that's built around the iPhone, but also the Apple TV, and it's it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it has typically been true that those are that those games are a little simpler, right? They sort of feel a little more like what you might think of as like Game Boy games, basically. Um, but that's less and less true, and in particular, okay. it's less true through Xbox. And so, what Xbox has started doing very recently is they now allow you to—I forget the—I don't know whether it's every single game, but um, in many circumstances, you can effectively stream your video game. So it's not playing on your phone. Right, the the processing is happening elsewhere. 
but you're seeing the image that you would see on your TV on your phone, and it's being delivered almost in a Netflix-style way, right, over the, over, and ideally Wi-Fi, but it can also work over 5G as well, and you play with a game controller that you attach to your phone because they're all Bluetooth-based. And so this idea of that you can have the top quality games, you know, the, um, that you're, you don't have to sacrifice quality for mobile, uh, for mobile play is now taking hold in, in mobile games. Um, yes, it, they are somewhat different. And, and for mobile games, people are often looking for something that they can play for five minutes in between classes right. or standing in line. At the same time, mobile is not nearly l- the limitation that it was even four or five years ago, and certainly not that it was a decade ago. Right. I guess, I mean, I'm trying, I've been trying to sort of get my head around this in part because as I've written in the past, you know, Netflix has chosen to a certain extent an anti-stickiness strategy, right? I mean, it releases all of these shows that you can binge that vanish from the cultural conversation almost immediately. I mean, there's just, there are almost no Netflix shows that produce sort of ongoing discussions in a big way. Um, And it doesn't, you know, by giving you all of a show at once. I mean, if you really are only interested in Netflix for like Bridgerton and the Crown, you can sign up for a trial, watch them in a week and just cancel them. And so I'm trying to understand this as sort of a stickiness play for Netflix, given that, you know, it seems really hard to pry away. People are already devoting, you know, six to nine or even three hours a day to an existing property that they know and like. Uh, But at the same time, there's also just a ceiling on the number of those people who exist, right? I mean, the, you know, getting, it seems like if Netflix is primarily, it seems like there's some tension between developing the sorts of games that would allow Netflix to have a smaller pool of people behave in a stickier way with the service and juicing subscriber numbers, which is where you're starting to see weakness, right? I mean, there's, there's a tension between, you know, Get, building the next World of Warcraft and getting the grandmas who are addicted to playing Farmville, right? It's not clear which market they're going to be going after. And if Netflix's history is any indication, it might be all of the above, depending. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I would say in some ways, sure, there's obviously today there's a limited number of people. I mean, there's always going to be a limited number of people who can spend nine hours on a game each day. Yeah. Um, but if you go back to 1988. Yeah. You know, and think about the number of people who played video games at all and the cultural understanding of sort of where video games fit into the pop culture landscape. It was that these are child's toys and no adult will ever play them. And now that's just completely not true. Right. And because I we think have that, regressed and, and, right. as a society. And, and right. the ceiling, I, right. So the ceiling on the number of people there has grown a lot over in recent decades. And I think it is possible that it will grow even more. Right. I guess what I'm saying is it seems to me, I mean, and maybe Netflix will take both routes, like, and develop, you know, a text-based sort of knives out game that you can play for five minutes while you're standing in line at the supermarket since we're going to the supermarket again and also a massively multiplayer Stranger Things game and sort of attempt to hook multiple groups of people. But um, it seems it seems like it's hard to both design for extreme stickiness and appeal to the people who are primarily looking for casual games. And it, you know, maybe they just have to do both that I'm overthinking this. But it's, it's funny to me that Netflix is trying to develop a stickiness strategy, um, if that's the best way to think of this after years of just refusing to do the obvious thing. Well, so I, I think it's, a, I think it's from a subscription standpoint. 
Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll let Sonny jump in here, but I do think it's it's partly a stickiness strategy, but it's also a how can we reach people who we have not yet reached? And they, I think, have a recognition that increasingly uh, people under 25 are spending a lot less time actually watching television and just much more time playing video games. And so if you want to be the service that people pay their $17 a month for 10 or 15 years from now, um, they may be thinking that it's just as likely that that service is going to need to specialize in video games as yeah. it is specialize in long form serial television type products. Yeah. I guess my, my big thought on this is that I have no, I have no confidence in, in Netflix's ability to make things that people will want to play for that period, that, that amount of time. I mean, like the, the, the video game industry, the video game marketplace is a very mature one and Netflix is only the only reason that Netflix has the lead that it does right now is because it was a first mover. It had a huge first mover advantage when it got into streaming. It was the first of the big services. It was the first one that everybody had to have. It was the buzzy one. It had all of the, you know, you could watch Friends, you could watch The Office, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was the only place you could do that. And like everybody else foolishly looked at what Netflix was doing and thought, ah, oh, this will never this will never work. Uh, and instead, with video games, um, I, they're, they're getting into a marketplace where PlayStation and Xbox command uh, the lion's share of the, uh, the marketplace. They, they have all of the recognizable IP. They have all of the recognizable uh, games. What, what in, in what universe does, does Netflix get into this and, and come out as like the leader in games? Or do they not even have, maybe they don't have to be the leader. Maybe they just have to be uh, in the conversation. They don't have to be the leader. Um, I think what they have to do is find that a dollar of game spending provides as much uh, either subscriber growth or time spent with Netflix boost as a dollar of production spending on a feature film or another season of the next Ozark. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing to me is it's just not clear that Netflix knows how to create really compelling storytelling. Like I'm happy to spend, you know, eight to 10 hours with a lot of Netflix content, but a lot of it's pretty ephemeral and not that strong, right? Like I would watch the crown regardless of, you know, sort of what they were doing with it. Cause I'm a Royals nerd. Um, but it doesn't suggest to me that Netflix has like cracked some kind of code on how to tell stories about the British monarchy. Like a lot of what they produce is just really forgettable. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I see them as having the chops to develop worlds that are sort of narratively compelling as well as from a sort of player perspective. But so pretty not. ephemeral and not that strong describes <laughs> an awful lot of the storytelling in video games, yeah, uh, even know. in successful video games. Um, and what a lot of those successful games have uh, is not a great story, but some sort of hooky, almost addictive mechanic. And yeah. there's a way in which Netflix is arguably better at developing stuff that's just sort of like, oh, this this is just a little thing that kind of hooks you, right? Like, this is just a little hooky, addictive thing, right? It's not necessarily something that is a great narrative that sort of has a, a lot of legs, but that's but that's true for a lot of games that that are reasonably successful that make that make their creators money. Now, again, it's a different model here also that you just got to remember. This is this is not the the model no. of pay per game, nor is it the free to play model in which 
the developers make all of their money by selling people tchotchkes and power-ups. Loot crates. Uh, okay, so what do we what do we think here? Is it a uh, controversy or a controversy that a giant tech company wants to get even gianter by using the giant amounts of data that they already have about us to give us more giant things that we want? Alyssa, controversy. Peter, I think it's kind of a controversy actually. And as as much as I have spent this podcast explaining that I think this could work, I also think it could fail disastrously, and this could be a you know a, a Queeby level failure on the part of Netflix. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a moral controversy. I don't care if yeah. Netflix introduces yeah. a, a you know video game platform, but I do think it's a terrible business move that they are not uh, equipped to really. Uh, flourish in, and I, I mean, I like like Peter says. I, I think this could be a Queeby style disaster, but fortunately, Netflix has giant crates of money to burn. So, what do they care? Loot um, crates of money. Loot crates of money to burn. If you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's a great show. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a bonus members-only episode highlighting our favorite Nicolas Cage performances. There are so many of them. There's like 15 this year alone. Uh, so make sure to head over there and check that out. Uh, be a fun episode. And now on to the main event, Pig, starring the one and only Nicolas Cage. A pig has been marketed in trailers and advertisements as something like Taken, but with a pig instead of a daughter, uh, highlighting the simple setup and a few action-oriented moments in the movie. But that is not really what the movie is about at all. Uh, and part of me hopes, the puckish, you know, prankster part of me, hopes that Pig inspires a handful of lawsuits like the one uh, Drive-inspired following viewers, discovering that that movie was not a big car chase car crash explosion movie, uh, but was in fact a meditation on loneliness and excellence. Uh, yes, Pig is about a man, uh, Rob is his name, that's Nicolas Cage, whose truffle hunting pig is stolen from him, and yes, he wants to track the pig down and get her back, uh, but the pig is only a MacGuffin, really, a good MacGuffin, but a MacGuffin nonetheless. Uh, the pig brings Rob out of hiding. He has lived in the woods for years following the death of his wife, and back into the world of high dining, uh, a world we come to learn that he is very familiar with, having been one of the great chefs on the Portland, Oregon scene many years ago. Uh, so great that his name opens every door, gets him reservations at every restaurant, uh, and gets him access to everyone. Um, he has a whole town of acolytes at his disposal just wanting to help him out. Uh, pig is about finding a pig, yes, uh, but only in the sense that The Godfather is about crime. It's not really about crime, it's about America. Um, what Pig is really about is the communion and community of food, the idea of taking a great deal of time and care to craft something that will disappear in minutes uh, after it arrives on dining room plates. Uh, and it's it's about staying true to yourself, really. There's a great moment in this film where Rob confronts a former sous chef uh, who, by all appearances, has achieved massive success. He's a big star. Everybody wants to go to his restaurant. Um, and Rob reduces this guy to near tears by reminding him that the frou-frou molecular gastronomy nonsense that he's putting on people's tables right now and getting huge acclaim for is not at all what he wanted to do with his life. Um, Cage is amazing in this movie, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but I want to give a special shout out to Alex Wolf, uh, who also stars in this week's Old, the M. Night Shyamalan movie about the beach that makes you old. Um, and he was very good in Hereditary, uh, which came out a couple years back. Um, he has a quiet intensity to him uh, in this film, in particular, the shifts from him being kind of a young, scruffy 
you know, kind of a dick. Um, uh, and then into, into being a grieving son and like angry at the world for, you know, kind of the way his, his family and his life has, has treated him. Um, and, and angry at the fact that he's just not sure of his place in it. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't quite know what is, what is happening. And Rob helps him figure that out. Um, writer, director, Michael Sarnowski gives Pig a great naturalistic look. It's darkly naturally lit. Um, it's bleak without being drab, which is not an easy, uh, trick to pull off. Um, and it is a it's a movie that doesn't have a lot of like bland coverage, you know, wide shots, medium shots, uh, setup shots to get the information told and the job done. Uh, Alyssa, what did you make of Pig? I loved this movie so very much. Um, I think it is definitely the best movie I've seen in theaters in the last 18 months. I don't count all of the Oscar contenders that I uh, had to watch um, either streaming on a laptop or in my, um, in my, on my TV because, you know, that's just a different experience. But um, I, I have been really interested in a tendency that's popping up in a lot of places in pop culture right now um, that James Ponowazek actually has a nice essay about in the New York Times this week about the sort of tenderness and sincerity that are making a comeback in American pop culture. And the kind of much quoted, um, you know, peak of that is Apple TV's Ted Lasso, uh, which is sort of aggressively kind in a way that this is not. But this is you know, I found Pig to be just so sort of tender and lovely. And I mean, it's a movie where, um, spoiler alert, like the the climactic showdown between the hero and the villain involves sort of an invocation of Proustian sense memory and cooking someone a really beautiful dinner and giving them, like getting them a special bottle of wine, right? It's like, it's, it is a movie about, um, you know, someone who has been deeply wounded, re-engaging with the world, someone who has been very bad kind of rediscovering his humanity, someone who has, you know, kind of been giving into the allure of the surface, feeling more comfortable with sort of his inner, you know, kind of squishiness and tenderness and sincerity. Um, and I just, I mean, it, I'm a sucker for that kind of thing, right? Like I, I'm the nice squishy person on this podcast and also just in most of my social circles. Um, but I thought that this, you know, I, I understand why there are people who are kind of turned off by the aggressive cheeriness of something like Ted Lasso. Um, but this just works at such a deep chord, right? It's, you know, it is almost part of Rob's appeal as a character is the extent to which he is sort of uncomfortably bluntly honest in a way that is cathartic for the people that he encounters in this movie. Um you know, sitting down with someone who by all appearances has attained the pinnacle of his perfection, of his profession, but has lost touch with the sort of simplicity of what he loves and reaffirms that that simplicity and that the sort of unfancy nature of that original desire are worthy things. It's like both a sort of painful thing to do because you're pointing out that someone has built his career on artifice, but it's also really kind, right? It's reaffirming the sort of hurt, you know, insecure part of this person that they packed away in order to become a success. Um, you know, it's, you, yeah, I really, you, I really loved it. You use a word sincere, yeah. uh, that I think is important here because it, it is sincere, but it's not nice. Yeah. Um, th this is, this is not a nice movie exactly, uh, in, in the sense that like people are cruel in it and they are intentionally cruel yeah. and, 
uh, it often serves a purpose. There's another there's another scene that uh, is very interesting to me because it it takes you a second to kind of realize what's happening. It's the the kind of fight club uh, scene where the 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 waiters and and other kind of uh, you know stepped upon masses of the restaurant business take their turns wailing on chefs as best as I could tell yeah. uh, is what's happening in that scene that the, the, that the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, back, back of the house. I don't even know what the, what the, what the, the proper house, term yeah, yeah. is, but it's, but it's, you know, the, the, the under the unsung heroes of the kitchen industry, you know, taking, taking their frustration out on the, uh, the, the folks who get all the credit, which is, again, it's, it's very interesting and very real, uh, sense a very real idea of like what what it kind of means to be in this world of um high dining and high pressure uh, well, well, uh cooking specifically part of what's interesting about that scene is that um what the people what the folks who are betting on this underground fight club are betting on is how long the people who are getting beat up and who literally can withstand pain, right? Like that's the measurement of success is your ability to like take the beating before you fall down. Um, And it, I mean, that accords with an interesting vision of sort of what it means to be successful in the restaurant industry that has been challenged with a lot in the past decade or so, but increasingly over the past two years due to the pandemic. Um, and it's interesting that Pig comes out around the same time that Roadrunner, this new documentary about Anthony Bourdain does, because Bourdain was someone who really glorified in, you know, in his early books the kind of masochistic, self-destructive vision of culinary excellence um, or in just of just restaurant work in general that prevailed for a long time. And one of the things that's been very interesting about uh, what's happening in hospitality, um, you know, writ large, not just restaurants, but everywhere else after the pandemic is that restaurants and other places are having trouble luring workers back to a profession that really was built around a kind of masochism, not just in the hours, but in the wage structures, in the cultures of a lot of prominent um, culinary establishments. There's a reason that um, the, you know, the culinary industry was very rocked by Me Too reckonings because they were all in sort of self-consciously brutal sexist places. Um, And part of what's interesting about Pig is both that, you know, Rob shows up to this fight club and is able to take a considerable beating enough to earn the information that he wants, but, and he is sort of blunt and hurtful in, on the surface, right? You could look at him and just think he's an absolute asshole. Um, But what you end up seeing in the movie is this sort of more, you know, deliberative kindness. There is, you know, there's this sort of pivotal moment when um, the villain is sitting down to a dinner at the end of the movie and taking a drink of this wonderful wine. And Rob takes a minute to praise the person who procured it, right? And to say, you know, look at this person, see his worth uh, and his, you know, sort of attention to detail. And so it's a movie that both kind of engages with the masochism of high-end food culture and really sort of ultimately calls it into question in ways that I think are compelling and human and kind of applicable, you know, beyond this immediate moment of reckoning, right? I mean, and the movie also just has some very strange qualities that I like a lot, right? I mean, there's this scene where, 
Rob is talking about the kind of futility of living in Portland because there's going to be an earthquake and a tidal wave and everyone's going to die and might as well flee to Mount Hood because who wants to move to Seattle? And that's the kind of thing that could be used to say, okay, but food doesn't really matter, right? It's like the end of the world, climate change is coming, all of the, you know, the earthquake is coming, all of this is going to be destroyed. And yet the movie reaffirms the idea that it's like, it's good to eat delicious, beautiful, deliberative things. Like it's good to go to the woods and, you know, hunt for truffles, not because luxury mushrooms are in and of themselves a great good, but because they force you to listen to the trees. Um, and so it is, you know, its sincerity runs to this core well of strangeness that I think is just really effectively done. It actually reminded me, um, some of what happens in Beasts of the Southern Wild, which I doubt either of you have seen, but I've had, seen it. Yeah, I've seen interesting it. interludes where it's both like a very specific story and kind of flashes back or forwards to these climactic disasters that um, kind of act as a metaphor for the rest of the movie. So I'm sorry, as you can tell, I really, really loved this movie, um, but I realize that also that I'm dominating the conversation about that and I feel guilty. <laughs> Peter, you also liked it. Yeah, I thought this was if great. I, if I am judging your Twitter feed correctly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's empathetic and it's just incredibly weird. It's a premise that on paper you're like, are you kidding me? Nicholas Cage is going after a pig and in the process ends up in an underground Portland fight club where and then like saves the dignity of some rando truffle supplier who's like in a weird tiff with his dad over their mom who is like it's just like it doesn't make any sense as a premise for a movie and it works perfectly in every single frame you know there's there's a kind of brutality to it but it's never ugly um it's you know it's this it's just a great movie about about human connection, I think, even more than it is about food, right? And and that's what the what the food is always there for is a is is as a vehicle for understanding yourself and even more so for understanding other people, for understanding the person who made it and understanding the person who is consuming it, um, for the whole ecosystem of production and um, and you know finding ingredients uh right and so you know as 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 Alyssa said it's about artistic integrity and authenticity and and personal decency and also about how everyone is in portland is completely doomed and i appreciated that um uh, Alyssa mentioned the scene at the end where rob confronts the villain who is of course you know the the wolf character's dad um and you know she you talked about how like that scene is just he makes a meal and um and it's the making of the meal that sort of is what in some ways defeats him but even more than that he defeats the villain by making him feel by drawing him out of his cold and callous shell right by reminding him of loss and the depth of feeling um and of humanity that comes out of that and that's that's sort of the central thing in this movie is that it is is that it's important to connect with other people and to feel, um, you know, and and you see that even with even with characters who you wouldn't necessarily think that that would be the case when you first meet them. Uh, Sonny, you mentioned how the the wolf character is kind of a dick, and 
there's a bad version of this movie, or at least a kind of a, a lesser one, in which he just becomes a smarmy Portland stereotype and is just sort of a, you know, oh, I'm a fussy dresser who cares a lot about truffles and doesn't know anything about the forest. But instead, we, over the course of the film, really get to understand him and what he's like and and why, um, right? And it does it with a with a really light touch. One of the great things about this movie is that it's like a crisp 91 minutes or something. I mean, it's yeah. it, it comes in... A, at exactly the right length. Um, yeah, it's beautiful and humane, and I loved it. It's, uh, I think it's the best thing I've seen in a theater um, since the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, it's probably the best possible remake of John Favreau's Chef that I can imagine. <laughs> I'd also note that it's um, just, if you're thinking about sort of screenwriting, it's a movie that's very good at conveying information efficiently. Um, there's a scene where Rob goes to a bakery that used to be the restaurant that he ran with his wife. And, you know, he's there to pick up a like very specific loaf of salted baguette. Um, and it's not a wordy scene, you know, it's sort of a brief conversation. Um, but you see something very fundamental in Rob in this moment where the baker, who's clearly one of his former employees, offers him a cookie and he asks if he can have another one. And she hands him one, or and she pushes the tray of cookies over, and he picks one up and inspects it and then puts it down and takes another one. And you see that sort of you know finickiness for detail. But then as he's leaving, he notes that she's taken down the curtains in the restaurant and you know says um, that you know Lori always said that they should do that, and she was right. And the movie never says in text that, you know. Rob's wife is dead, that she was his business partner, that they maybe had some disagreements about how to run the business. But you see all of that in like 15 words. It's just a wonderful movie at, you know, finding writerly economies and conveying exactly the amount of information you need in a naturalistic way. I mean, there's nothing in the movie that feels like exposition. Um, it all feels just naturalistic and great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tight ninety, uh, and it is it, it, it is it is great. What did you guys? Uh, we're talking about Amir, who is the character played by uh, Alex Wolf, uh, a, a bit here, and I'm I'm curious what you guys make of the fact that he listens to essentially classical music instruction tapes in in his car. He's listening to what I, I if they're podcasts, I don't know what, whatever they are, but he's listening to something that helps him understand how classical music works better. Which is an interesting little touch to me. It's not just that he's listening to classical music, no. right? It's not that he's just listening to a podcast. It's that he's like engaging in a very specific form of self-help, which I feel like is kind of integral to the entire film. Yeah, it's a movie um, about... Better living, better living through art or art appreciation. But it's also a movie about the value of doing things correctly, right? And sort of correctly to a high standard. Um and one of the things that is interesting about the movie uses a device where it's sort of divided into courses um, and there are specific kinds of food that come up in um, each sort of third of the movie. And the first is a rustic mushroom tart that Rob makes, you know, in his house in the woods and you see him, you know, uh, making tart dough by hand, like combining the flour and the butter together it physically as opposed to in a food processor the way I confess that I do it. And it's, you know, it's not fancy. He shares it with his pig. 
But as you come to learn more about him, you understand the sort of level of excellence that that represents. The second act, you know, has uh, juxtaposes both Amir's mother's French toast and this sort of molecular gastronomy at this restaurant that he's visiting. And there's a little moment where, you know, Amir's made raw French toast. Rob eats it and then says at the end, you should use stale bread for French toast. It's better, right? And so there's this idea that, you know, a breakfast that you make, even as a non-cook, casually at home in your apartment, you know, you should take care of the little things. And I think that the the sort of classical music stuff, it's like, you can listen or you can listen. And Amir is someone who has maybe not learned how to step into that second category of you know, food appreciation of music, but he understands that there is a correct way to do things and he is striving towards it, even if he hasn't quite achieved it. Yeah, it's an interesting beat. And I think the movie is making fun of him a little bit for it. Yeah. Um, it's about how his quest for fancy person quality is in some sense a put on a kind of a joke, right? It's a little bit pathetic is not quite the right word. Um, but there's something a little bit, I don't know, sad or goofy about it. Um, he's <laughs> studying this stuff rather than just it is poignant, I think, in the end. But it's also I, so this is one of the things about, that I love about this movie is it is not just sort of presenting these characters as as like oh these are actually deeply lovable wonderful people like they're kind of weird they're kind of like he is kind of a dick at times he's not just that and there are reasons for it and the movie also i think makes fun of him a little bit for his his shirt and his yeah. his pretensions right um, for that apartment that he has and yet it's also saying look this person can be a little bit of a ridiculous portland douche and also can be a person who is worth who's worthwhile and who is worth uh, worth your time and is and has something to offer to the world and in the end i think it you know I, like i said i do think it's making fun of him a little bit but i also think it's it's saying that he's doing it because he's he cares and he doesn't he doesn't always know how to apply that caring but he's trying he's trying so hard to connect with the world which is the hardest hardest thing in the world to do um and it doesn't always work and he doesn't always go about it the best way and the movie is full of characters like that. I yeah. mean, that's the, what the scene in Eurydice, the sort of fancy molecular gastronomy restaurant is right about, which is, you know, it's probably a pretty good molecular gastronomy restaurant. Like Rob says some of the stuff tastes good, but it is based in a mistaken conception of what sort of seriousness and care and detail are supposed to turn out. Um, I mean, the, it, about. The, the bit about the scotch eggs is so great because scotch eggs are actually really quite processy to turn out. I like good ones. Like uh, it's, you know, he could have been making the world's best or Portland's best scotch eggs. And instead he's making something that he doesn't love because, because yeah. the audience does. And so, you know, in some ways it's a little bit about, uh, it's a little bit about movies. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Pig? Alyssa. Thumbs way up. Peter, both thumbs, all my other fingers, and ten toes, and I'm going to borrow some my, like somebody else's thumbs just to give it more thumbs up. One thumb up for Peter. Uh, <laughs> thumbs up for me as well uh, because I, I I I I agree with you guys. I, I mean, this is the best movie I've seen in a theater this year. It's the best movie I have seen uh, at all. 
all this year, really. The best new movie, certainly. Um, so good movie. See it. Go see it if it's playing in a theater near you. It is playing in theaters. It's funny. I told a couple folks like, hey, you got to go see this new Nick Cage movie, Pig. And they're like, where's it streaming? What service is it on? Nobody, nobody believes that Nick Cage can open a movie in theaters. And they're probably right because this didn't like open, open, but it's still very good. Go see it. This is going to end right. up being a cult hit on yeah. VOD streaming, etc. for years. Like people will come back yes. to this movie. It's gonna and be, I think it's, you know, I, I'll just say like my thumbs up is this is the first movie I've really just wanted to like walk back in the theater and see a second time immediately that I've seen in a really long time. Yeah. Uh, all right. That is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on our favorite Nick Cage movies. We got more Nick Cage content for you, folks. It's it's great. Everyone loves Nick Cage. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.